You are listening to the Abra Money 3.0 show, your guide to the future of all things money. In this episode, Abra founder and CEO Bill Barhide is in conversation with Chad Casarilla, the co-founder and CEO of Paxos. Paxos has launched a number of products related to moving traditional financial assets onto blockchain. Bill and Chad talk about the importance of stablecoins to the cryptocurrency system and why more assets will be tokenized in the future. But before jumping in, remember, the information presented in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It should not be used or construed as an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any of the financial assets discussed. Any opinions expressed herein are subject to change. Neither Abra nor any of the participants in this podcast make any representation as to the suitability or appropriateness of these financial assets for individual investors. And with that out of the way, on to the show. Hey everyone, uh, Bill Barhide here. Welcome to another exciting episode of Abra's Money 3.0. Joining me in the studio today is Chad Casarilla, the CEO of ItBits. You may know them as uh, Paxos. So Chad, welcome to Money 3.0. Great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me on, Bill. Hey, so let's get right into it. Um, interesting 2019, I think uh, one of the key stories was what's going on with Libra. Uh, and in, in our world, you know, that kind of sounds like a, like a stable coin. Um, why, why are stable coins now so, so in, so du jour, so exciting? What's the, you know, what's the reality here? I mean, why do they matter? Yeah, well, I think um, there's a couple reasons why it matters. The first is, um, I, I know uh, we're all in the crypto space, uh, so um, people have a lot of different viewpoints on this and what exactly is money. But at the end of the day, the U.S. dollar is really uh, kind of money and because everyone's using that as their unit of account. Everything in your books is denominated in dollars, generally. Um, and then it's a means of payment. It, it's on like 80% of transactions uh, or 60% of transactions, depending on how you calculate it, are in dollars. So uh, dollars are what people are using, but dollars only on a digital basis go through a commercial bank. And so you're going to a commercial bank, that means you're moving nine to five, five days a week. If you take money and you put it into uh, uh, dollars and you put it onto a blockchain, you now have dollars that can move 24 hours a day, seven days a week, nearly instantaneously, and they're programmable. So you're really taking money and upgrading it from really COBOL mainframes run through the banks onto a blockchain ledger that anybody can access. And so that's why it's really important. And if you look at where um, this has started, it's in the crypto space because crypto assets are moving 24-7 instantaneously, but waiting for wires to move. And a lot of activities cross-border would take days. It's completely anachronistic. And so the demand for blockchain money has actually, in some ways, maybe ironically, been driven by the crypto world. and. I think that's where you saw this clear need. That's where there's five and a half billion dollars of tokenized dollars now. Um, And uh, what Libra did, as you pointed out, is it really started to make the conversation about being able to put money onto a blockchain because you could then start to do not just crypto transactions, which is how it's primarily used now, but begin to do means of payments for remittances, for general payments, for FX trading. And money is the foundational asset to move upgrading money allows you to upgrade everything 
So let's let's unpack that for a second, right? So 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 the history of of crypto based uh, stablecoins, as you as you refer to them, uh, to, for, in my mind, really starts with Tether, right? So um, the growth of that, and there may be some other examples, but that's the one that really took off first, as far as I'm aware. And so, really, at the end of the day, Tether uh, to me was almost a, a regulatory arbitrage opportunity for exchanges that were operating outside the U.S that didn't have access to the banking system, weren't able to process, let's say, wires coming in, they basically created this synthetic dollar um, backed by, in theory, dollars in a bank account that allowed traders to get quick access to dollar, Bitcoin, dollar, Ethereum uh, trading pairs um, without having to deal with all of the, the, the regulatory aspects or compliance aspects of trying to, quote unquote, get a bank account, which in, in, in our shared world uh, means, you know, can my exchange process incoming bank wires, uh, which generally a lot of these offshore exchanges uh, cannot or could not. And, and so now, and, and since then, it's gotten this network effect where it seems to be the, the front runner. So, so why are stable coins going to be adopted for other reasons beyond this initial kind of regulatory arbitrage issue of I can't deposit money into my exchange account? And, and where, where are they going from here? Yeah, well, I agree that, you know, uh, clearly Tether um, is benefiting from a regulatory arbitrage. Um, and that's why the New York Attorney General, at least part of the reason why they're going after them, you know, do, are the assets actually backing them? Is it really a stable coin? It's not really a stable coin. Because it's not really backed one for one with U.S. dollars. I mean, they, they told us that. Uh, but nonetheless, um, there's such a demand. I think what it, what it really highlights is there's such a demand for dollars on a blockchain that it doesn't even matter if it's actually fully backed, if it's really trustworthy, people just need it. And, um, uh, and so they really led the way. They, they, they solved a clear need in the market, in the crypto markets. Um, but I also think um, at the end of the day, that's as good as it's going to get for Tether because no institution is going to use it. As the banking system upgrades to be on open ledgers, no one's going to be using Tether for that because it's not built in a way that creates trust, that creates um, institutional adoption. And that's what you're going to need in order to really change the financial system. And I think that's why we're all in crypto. How do you do something really big, not just how do you solve a problem uh, that's both niche and um, time delimited, right? How are you going to solve something that's big? And that can really change things on a long time scale. So what is the big need, by the way? Just to interrupt. So 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 you mentioned that big need. I'm in banking. Uh, I'm attending all these conferences. All these crazy crypto people come to me. Everybody's talking about Libra stablecoins. Why why should I care? Like how is this going to affect me, um, Mr. Beck? Well, it's going to affect everybody in a different way. So let's just uh, we'll, we'll we'll talk about what is the general benefits, and then we can talk about hey, what does it do for a bank versus a consumer versus some institution versus a business. Um, so putting money on a blockchain means that you now get the benefits of a blockchain, and so it depends on exactly how that blockchain is constructed. But let's um, say some of the common benefits. First of all, it now is operating twenty four seven. Banks don't operate twenty four seven. It's nine to five. Um, it's uh, moving money instantaneously. Uh, certainly in the need for cross-border movements, you're generally talking about multiple days. Um, if you're talking about ACH payments, which is just in the U.S., that's still taking a day. And they're revocable for 30 to 60 days, depending on exactly what you're doing. So you have a non-revocable instantaneous movement of an asset. And um, uh, you can actually do it much cheaper. So 
the cost to move something on Ethereum is way cheaper than moving a wire, a cross-border wire. What is it, uh, 15 cents or something on Ethereum or 10, depending on whatever it is, the day and the price um, versus spending like $25, $50 for a cross-border wire. And then the last thing is it's programmable. So commercial banks' money isn't really programmable. It's sitting in a bank. It can be moved, but it's rather simple ledger movements. You can't do anything advanced. Whereas you have cash on a blockchain, you can now start to be very programmatic about it. That's a huge, complete upgrade in what you're getting. And then the last component is access. In order to be able to access money in a bank, you got to have a bank account. And you know, for most people, that doesn't really seem like a gating factor. But in fact, there's 50 million people in the U.S. that are unbanked. There's billions of people around the world that are unbanked. You don't need a bank account in order to be able to hold, have uh, money on a blockchain. You just have to have a wallet, which means you just need to have a smartphone, which is most everybody now. Um, so it's actually harder to get a bank account than it is to have a smartphone. Um, and so uh, all you need is an internet access to now have access to a bank account, uh, effective bank account. So that's a huge difference. Now, some of those benefits aren't necessarily good for banks. Some of them could be. It just depends on how, you know, you now have a new playing field. Can you ad adjust and adapt to the new playing field or do you want to still play the old game? I don't think the old game is going to work anymore because uh, you have something new and disruptive that's happened. We see that analogously in many other industries, telecom, media, energy. You look at it, things change. You need to be able to adapt. This is a much better technology. It's creating an open network, and you got to be able to adapt to it. Yeah. So, so my my impression of banks is is that they don't do anything that governments and and, and compliance regulators, uh, you know, don't tell them they're allowed to do. Right. So, so it, it it sounds like it may very well be that these things get adopted first, kind of outside of the traditional banking system, somewhere in between, whether it's money service businesses, the the Libra concept, um, other. Uh, money transfer, remittance, payments companies, and then make their way uh, into maybe into traditional banks uh, long term, right? So, I mean, time will tell. Um, okay, so let's segue that into what you guys are doing. Talk about uh, your products in the space uh, and and where you guys are at with those products now. Yeah, so um, if, I'll tell you a little bit about Paxos because it really um, – informs what our products are. So we spent um, a long time creating a trust company in the state of New York. We were the first uh, crypto firm to get a trust company uh, in, uh, in New York and I think otherwise. And so that was really important to us because our whole goal is to create infrastructure that others can build on. And so um, the trust company gives us access to, um, I'd say, the old financial ledgers so that we can help assets be able to move into this new open ledger world. So we're creating this infrastructure that facilitates a way of being able to move these assets uh, into a new environment. And so we've done that in a number of different ways. One, we hold people's conventional crypto, uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum, whatever it might be. The next thing we do is we take, we hold people's cash, we can do cash management, and we tokenize that cash and allow it to be put into uh, any kind of blockchain environment. And then the last thing, is we take real-world assets and put them into a blockchain environment. And we've done that with gold. We're doing it with U.S. equities. Uh, there's no real end to the size of real-world assets can be put on a blockchain either. But what was really clear to us is being able to help change cash um, is the foundational asset to facilitate this move into an open world. 
because everything is moving against cash. Every transaction is against cash. Every payment involves cash. Um, every um, uh, uh, transaction for services or goods, it's all cash. Yeah. And <clears throat> so you need to really have that. You know, putting gold on a blockchain is fine, but if you're moving dollars on a wire, what's the point? Putting U.S. equities on a blockchain is great, but you still got to move payments against it. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. How, how are you going to do that? And so um, I think Paxos has taken this really unique approach because we went out and created the trust company. We're regulated like a bank, but it's actually safer. Uh, all of our assets are held for our customers in their name, segregated. So even if anything happens to Paxos, our clients' assets are completely ring-fenced. Um, and that's how infrastructure is set up in the U.S. today. So we're not doing anything completely um, uh, novel from that perspective. What is novel is that we're taking clients' assets, we're segregating them, and we're putting them to the blockchain. And so we're doing that in a regulated way where we're regulated as a trust company, but the asset itself that we're creating is regulated. So we created a dollar stable coin. It was that uh, uh, stable coin was approved by our regulator. Uh, we created a gold-backed stable coin. It was approved by a regulator. We had to put an application in. They approved it. We've also created uh, stable coins for other firms, uh, most notably uh, Binance and Huobi, the two largest exchanges in the world. And that's really kind of a white labeling model where we'll run the infrastructure for these firms and they can have a stable coin. It's been regulatory approved and it now creates the ability for them to be able to have um, a cash relationship with our customers, whereas before it might have only been a crypto relationship or not as truly effective a cash relationship. And we can do this for all kinds of different firms. And I think <clears throat> a lot of what 2019 was about is talking about stable coins and still seeing stable coins being very useful, but in the crypto world. And, and I feel really confident saying that 2020 will be about stable coins uh, breaking outside of the crypto early adopter community into what I would call like kind of the broader um, uh, usage in the world. And you'll see that in payments, you'll see that in remittances, you'll see it in FX trading. I know it'll happen because we're having so many of these conversations and um, they're very, very serious ones. And so I know a lot of firms are looking at how they can handle this. And I think that was, at the end of the day, not because of Paxos creating a regulated stablecoin, as much as I would like to give ourselves the credit for that. Um, it's because Libra really changed everyone's idea of what they need to be thinking about. Um, not that the technology didn't exist before that, but they just take up so much of the uh, space in which people are able to talk. Yeah. Well, to me, it seems like it's a consumer, it's a consumer application versus institutional, right? So, so if, if Facebook didn't have, you know, 1.5 billion WhatsApp users and 1.4 billion Instagram users, I don't know what the numbers are, but something like that. And an equal number of people on Facebook messenger, my guess is nobody would care. Uh, because they would assume that, you know, it's no different than any other company trying to play with technology. But once they do this, of course, they're going to be the first bank, whatever that means, with with over a billion users very, very quickly if they if they give it away. Again, we don't know what that means. We'll, we'll, time will tell. Um, so so how do you guys uh, a new question? So how do you guys actually make money uh, in this whole stablecoin world? Right. I mean, if a dollar is supposed to be a dollar and you're trying to make it cheap to move dollars around, you mentioned Ethereum, 15 cents, whatever, which it sounds great, um, but it doesn't sound like a potentially like a, a, a great way to make business on a per transaction basis. So so what's the business model behind these, these stable coins? 
Yeah, well, I think there's a couple components to this. First, um, we make money because we're holding uh, people's dollars. We take those dollars and we're generally holding them uh, in a way that either they have FDIC insurance um, or they're held in T-bills so that's U.S. government risk. And so we're not taking any kind of credit risk with people's money they've given us. It's actually safer than if you put it in a bank. Uh, we earn the interest from uh, uh, those assets that they're uh, held in. And then the uh, the customer can then move that cash around and have really great confidence that they're using something that's regulated and is truly backed and <clears throat> uh, will be able to uh, be accepted anywhere as U.S. dollars. Um, now, we're not earning a per transaction fee. I agree that like um, uh, the Ethereum network um, is cheap in some ways. It's expensive in others. You know, if you're kind of making small consumer payments, it's probably not as effective as is going to be needed for things to really scale. Um, on the other hand, for any type of wire movements or other types of cross-border movements, it's significantly better. Um, so uh, I think the Ethereum network is has a lot of um, ambitious roadmap in terms of how it's going to be able to improve to be able to be a much more functional blockchain. But Ethereum isn't the only network that you could put a stablecoin on. And I don't think that will be uh, um, the only place you'll see stablecoins. They're going to start moving into other networks, examples being like um, Stellar or Ripple or maybe Algorand or whomever it might be, where you can really get low cost, high throughput. Mm -hmm. And so clearly all the network effect is on Ethereum. Clearly it's in the pole position. But it also clearly needs to continue to grow because it's congested. And, it, you know, at whatever it is, 17 transactions per second, that's two orders of magnitude slower than Visa. Um, it doesn't mean you have to get the Visa levels, but you got to get at least one order of magnitude uh, better than where you're at. And it's not really close to getting there. And so um, stable coins will have to continue to ad adopt and to push Ethereum. but if Ethereum doesn't adapt, it'll adapt somewhere else. And I, I'm pretty confident that um, the blockchain um, itself is here. Whether it's Ethereum that everyone's going to be using in five years, that's a big open question. And they, while they have the pole position, that's not what's going to be the ultimate determinant of the success of stablecoins. It's too valuable to have something on an open network. If Ethereum isn't able to do it, then something else will. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, it, it seems to me that, um, you know, if we get another crypto kitty situation where, you know, everybody's going nuts uh, with, with Ethereum transactions that, you know, are, are, are worthless, we could easily get to a point where, you know, simple stablecoin transactions are too expensive, right, uh, to do to do on chain, um, which probably would have happened if we were in the same situation that we have now from a technology perspective, but with, you know, the 2017 kind of late early 2018 uh, volumes, whether it's because of CryptoKitties or ICOs or who knows, some combination of all those, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we saw, for instance, Tether move on to Ethereum and uh, that started to create uh, some congestion within the network. They increased the size of the blocks, um, you know, in a relatively efficient and non-controversial way that helped to relieve some of the stress on the system. Um, there's this whole concept of moving to Ethereum 2.0, which will hopefully you know, really be able to increase the speeds. There's a lot of work that's being done, whether, and this is not just necessarily in Ethereum, but in Bitcoin as well, uh, for Lightning Networks and 
for a whole variety of ways to be able to increase um, speeds, you know, side chains, a whole variety of things. Um, so I think that um, uh, if you tried to put the whole world on Ethereum today, it would clearly fail. If you tried to put the whole world on almost any blockchain right now, it would fail. Absolutely. But that's not like, um, uh, I don't know if that's a fair test because that's not what we're really talking about. Like we're talking about um, what's a five or 10 or 15 year transition. Sure. And we're talking the, about the rate of adoption. Really. Exactly. Exactly. And you don't need to solve that problem today. So it would kind of be a waste, right? Would you, should you go out and try and make Ethereum at 20,000 transactions per second today? Would that, would that be a good use of resources or are there other problems that need to be solved? And so you got to solve the right problem at the right time. And so I think, in some ways, it's almost used as a stalking horse as a way to um, say uh, this can't happen. Right. Whereas I think it's inevitable that it will happen. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of entrenched interest that clearly would be disrupted by this. And so, you know, I, I feel like that they try to revert the conversation back to speed yeah. um, because they're not going to win on functionality. So, so in this vein of talking about problems that do matter, you guys chose gold as kind of the second tokenized asset after dollars, right? Why, why gold? Why, why do we need a, a stable coin gold now? As, I mean, you could have chosen anything, oil, other commodities, uh, real estate, but you focused on gold. Why, why, why gold? Well, um, you know, it, in some ways, uh, gold is a commodity. In some ways, it's money. Um, and historically, it's been money. It's not really used that way now, meaning uh, it's not nobody uh, denominates their books in gold. And no one's really able to use it as a consumer payment, but it's still held as a store of value for a lot of people. It has eight trillion dollars in market value, so it's a big asset class. Um, it um, is a stock asset, meaning that um, it's not really used for industrial purposes. It's really used as an investment purpose, and so that makes it a very good use case for being able to put on a blockchain because you can move it around. It's completely fungible, but it has a lot of problems that a blockchain can solve. And um, some of the problems that gold has are the same problems any commodity has, which is if you actually have the physical asset, it's not very easy to divide it, and it's not very easy to move it around, and it's not easy, very easy for someone else to accept it. Yeah. Uh, whereas if it's very tradable, very fungible, very divisible, um, and uh, you know, very liquid, uh, it's probably not the actual commodity. It's probably some derivative. And so, and that's exactly the case in gold. If you really want to be able to whip it around, you basically are trading an ETF, which is synthetic gold or, or a futures contract. Right. And if you really want to hold something where you feel like you have ownership or you want to be able to move it around um, in a physical way, it's extremely cumbersome. But if you put gold on a blockchain, which is what we did, you take gold, it's sitting in a vault in Brinks uh, in London. Uh, we take the gold, we tokenize it. Every token that we take equals one ounce. And it relates to the serial number of the bar in London. So you actually have ownership of real gold now, but you can send it to anybody 24 hours a day, seven days a week, instantaneously, low cost. It's fully redeemable for the physical. You can go to other um, uh, gold retailers and redeem it for physical gold if you want to, and they'll accept it. So uh, we've actually, I think, solved a lot of the limitations of gold. Part of the reason why it stopped being money is because it couldn't really be very easily put into a digital form. That's not the only reason, but that's an important one. <clears throat> and now you're able to solve that problem. And you can now make it so that anybody in the world, again, who has a smartphone, can actually own physical gold sitting in a London um, a vault. 
And so to us, that was a really logical thing to solve. It does allow you to solve um, institutional trading problems as well as retail um, uh, ownership problems. And I think um, we'll clearly do more commodities over time. And, um, you know, potentially gold could very well end up being used because of this in a more transactional way. And so for us, that was a really exciting way to take an asset and put it on a blockchain because I firmly believe there's $600 trillion of assets in the world. All of those assets are going to end up on a blockchain mm-hmm. in the limit. You yep. know, in some far enough time horizon, that's what's going to happen. Yep. How, how do you get there from here? What is the right sequence of assets to put on? And um, uh, you know, what is that time horizon that it happens in? And so I'm sure it's going to take quite a long time to get to doing like the last piece of real estate in some far off place. But generally, this is a giant database upgrade that's happening in the world. And gold is a very logical one to be able to do first. Yeah. So, so how many, let's take a step back first. I want to talk about how many people are doing this, but before we get there, so, so the way this works is, is if I'm a, if I'm Ray Dalio and I decided uh, that, Hey, I'm I need to put a big chunk of my net worth in, in gold because uh, doomsday is coming here and um, I want to do it through you guys. So basically I open an account on, on Paxos, right? I, I, I wire a bunch of money and you basically give me a, a window on my web browser that allows me to do a spot purchase of, of uh, gold for uh, for my digital dollars is that that's more or less the way it works? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So so how many people are doing this, and uh, are you guys actively kind of consumer marketing this, or is it more of a trading thing for you now? I mean, what what's the plan for this? Yeah, I mean, um, it's a, it's a combination of things here. So one, it's actively uh, marketed. We have um, a range of different types of customers. You have a retail who say they want to be able to, you know, say uh, as a person that wants to be able to own gold, they might be in the U.S., uh, they might not be in the U.S. Then you have, um, I'd say, you know, something like half or more of our customers are outside the U.S. Um, And so, you know, I think gold is a universal asset. I'm not surprised to see that. Um, That kind of mirrors our crypto customer base. Half Mm -hmm. or more of our customers are outside the U.S. Um, And then there's institutions that are actually using it to settle institutional gold trades today. Uh, Now they're doing it in smaller amounts because we're just working through how to be able to size this up, but they're actually um, settling PAX dollars and PAX gold, which is really exciting for us. So you're, you're getting tokenized dollars, tokenized gold against institutional London gold trades. Yeah. Now given that the liquidity right now is obviously elsewhere, what's the attraction for them for those first movers to actually institutions, I mean, to come into Paxos to do those trades that they were obviously, even though they may not be have taking physical ownership of gold, uh, they were able to do those transactions elsewhere. So, what's the attraction for them as first movers to come into you guys now? Well, um, and I think this is important. While there's still um, uh, limited liquidity in Pax Gold, the token, if you come to Paxos, we're able to trade into the London gold market. Okay. And there's practically no size limit to our ability to access liquidity. You know, if someone came in and said they wanted to buy $25 million of gold from us, we can get that done very, very tight. $50 million, $100 million. The markets are so deep and so liquid uh, during normal trading hours for spot gold, you can, you can buy $25, $50 million up in, in a second. So while we only have $15 million of PAX gold that's been tokenized, if someone wanted to come in and buy $25 million, it's not like um, the market's going to blow out because 
you're talking about the global gold market, which is trading um, something like a couple hundred billion dollars a day. Yep. It's just enormous, the size yeah, of the gold yeah. market. So like, we're not moving the market by creating it. So all that's the only limitation is our ability to be able to go into that market and buy it. And so we, we work with INTL in this case, which is a very large uh, London gold uh, broker. And someone uh, sends us the money, we can buy as much as they want. Yep. It's yep. just there's no limit. And so um, now the gold token itself is building liquidity. And so it was really cool this week. Uh, actually, uh, sorry, I'm getting my weeks confused. It was last week. Uh, FTX just launched perpetual gold futures and quarterly gold futures uh, of Pax Gold. Uh, Pax Gold has been listed on Kraken. We have it on um, Itbit. So there's a number of places it's been um, being added on exchanges regularly and across wallets regularly. So I feel really great that we'll start to build up the liquidity pool of tokenized gold. Um, and, and so that needs to grow. But the actual um, ability to turn gold into a tokenized gold with almost no slippage yeah. right now. Yeah, that's awesome. So what's next? So, so you've got the dollar product. Uh, you've got the gold product. What's the next interesting tokenized product that were, or any other product that we see coming out of Paxos in 2020? Um, well, I don't want to uh, you know, kind of jump the gun too much. But this, I, um, I know we've already talked about publicly. It will definitely be U.S. equities. Mm -hmm. So we already have a no action letter from the SEC uh, that allows us to be able to settle real live tape reported U.S. equities trades. Um, I think um, that will probably happen next week uh, would be my guess. Early next week, we'll be able to you know, publicly uh, announce that we have two participants. We have three in total, but we have two participants that will be on the system first settling real live U.S. equities trades, um, tokenized dollars against tokenized U.S. equities. Wow. And that's, I think, a huge milestone of being able to settle on a blockchain and it'll be a private blockchain. Yeah. It needs to be a private blockchain because there's no, like we were just talking about, there's no public blockchain that can handle all the U.S. equities trades in the world. Right. So it's right. not a private blockchain uh, for those reasons. Um, but that's going to be a really big deal, really exciting for us. Um, another step along the way to putting real assets onto a blockchain. And then I know we're going to do more commodities. I know we're going to do more types of securities. Um, but uh, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of the conversation that we're uh, able to execute on internally. Uh, I know that we have something that's really just a week or so away. And that's going to be super exciting for us. Awesome. So um, I know we're running out of time here. And, and this has been, I could talk to you for hours. So this is super fascinating. So so uh, I guess last question then, What what's your... Uh, you know, what, what do you think is going to surprise people the most uh, in, in crypto land in, in 2020? About how much it's not going to be about crypto, which I think is the most exciting thing. So, I mean, when I say not about crypto, I mean, you know, we're all a little bit still in um, our, our own uh, circle and, uh, you know, and having a breakout into the broader world of being able to be uh, used not for uh, crypto trading or crypto transactions, but for other things is I think the hope of what we're all in this for. And so I think the most exciting thing will be how much the conversation shifts from being about crypto to being about how it's solving problems in the broader world. Yeah, fascinating. So I actually totally agree with you on that. Uh, I think we're gonna start to see kind of broad-based applications where crypto is hidden. The fact that it's on blockchain and, and you're using tokenized assets is is more becomes more of a technology enabler 
which is where it belongs, right? I mean, people, yeah. you know, if I'm, if I'm looking to make money or, uh, you know, use the banking system. I don't, I don't care how it works. I just need to trust that it works. Uh, and I think you guys yeah. are, are doing some amazing work uh, in, in, in making that happen. Um, so the, the evolution- I completely agree with that, by the way, like, I feel like, you know, if you, no one knows how their phone works, but it works, right? Absolutely. I mean, somebody knows, but most people don't, but we're sitting here in the blockchain world. So focused on all of these small things, yeah. um, that if you're going to get broad adoption, can't be the focus. It's a little bit of an echo chamber that we're all hoping to break out of. Um, I think we're getting that critical mass now. That's right. But I mean, if you worked in the early version of the credit card industry in the seventies, People talked about acquirers and issuers and all the things that no consumer would ever talk about today. They just swipe a card or stick a card in the machine or tap a card and it works. Uh, and, and I think that's we're in that kind of an early analogous state of having to talk about on chain versus off chain and level, you know, level one versus level two. And, yeah. uh, you know, Casper versus no Casper, proof of stake versus proof of work. And consumers don't care, obviously. Most institutions don't even care, except to the extent that they can trust that it works. And I think we're ready for the next phase of what are, what are the initial applications that are going to drive people who don't care about the technology to actually use the technology? Oh, I completely agree with that. I mean, it's like, uh, I remember dialing up to Freenet, uh, you know, and, you know, there's no web browser. (laughs) Basically we're kind of at that stage. Absolutely. (laughs) Where's Netscape? Where's Netscape? That's what we're we're waiting for. I, I, I can tell you the, the war stories we fought in those days uh, in Netscape. So, so look, so I, by the way, I remember, uh, I think you and I have known each other for going on six, six and a half years now. You guys, that's really, the uh, public doesn't know this, but we, we funded Abra. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, first uh, sources of funds we got actually was somebody transferring uh, Bitcoin to fund their stock purchase uh, via Itbit uh, at the time. Yeah. Uh, and I remember having to go through the process of setting up the wallet and, and getting online to do it. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was one of the largest exchange uh, movements uh, at the time. Uh, and I won't embarrass who it was, but uh, it was really cool. Um, and and so uh, I think well, hopefully it's not embarrassing for him because we all know Abra is going to go oh, play. More yeah, better. so exactly. So uh, no, it was awesome. And uh, I said this in the future. And so um, you know, each in, I think since then, each of our financings we've had at least one investor uh, fund uh, fund via Bitcoin since then. So um, so uh, congratulations on on the product success. I think the vision is, is fantastic and I wish you guys nothing but uh, but ongoing success in 2020 and beyond. And and please come back um, you know in a few months and tell us how it's going. And um, I, I think our we have a huge audience here, people who are really passionate about uh, this idea of tokenization. Uh, and, and putting real world assets uh, into the kind of crypto slash blockchain sphere. Uh, and so what you guys are doing, I think, is, uh, you know, is, is, a, is a good bullseye for, for our audience. And so they'd love to hear how it's going in a, in a few months. Uh, Bill, it's been great talking with you. It's probably been uh, too long. And um, uh, I really love what you guys are doing at Abra. And I really appreciate being on. And I feel like I could talk to you for hours, too. Um, you know, it's a uh, deco chamber is a fun place to be. So it's um yeah, you know, just then there's so much to learn. Awesome. So, so uh, if people want to learn more about everything we talked about on the Paxos side, uh, I, I assume just uh, Paxos.com is is the easiest place to go. Yeah, that's exactly right. You go to Paxos.com, you can see our different products. Uh, you can learn about how our Pax Dollar product is set up, uh, or you can go learn more about Pax Gold. And um, uh, if there's any questions, you know, you can always um, email us as well. 
Okay, fantastic. So we'll call it there. Uh, Chad Casarilla, uh, CEO, founder, uh, uh, Paxos, ItBit, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been another fantastic episode of uh, Average Money 3.0. And uh, have a great day, everyone, and we'll uh, we'll see you soon on uh, Money 3.0. Take care, everyone. Thanks a lot, Bill. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Avra's Money 3.0, your guide to the future of all things money. This episode is a great place for us to wrap up this season of the podcast. We will be taking a short hiatus to plan and record the next season. Please be sure to stay up to date and check out our other episodes at abra.com slash podcast or subscribe to the show on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any story ideas or thoughts about what you'd like to hear in the future, please let us know. And thanks again for listening.